0: Welcome to the AM Labs Podcast, where we work to understand labs better, to care for patients better. I'm Nathan Rocky.
1: And I'm Jacob Louie. We believe that a solid understanding of labs will help us treat patients and not just their lab values.
0: This is the AM Labs Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of AM Labs. Hope you've had a great couple weeks. Uh, we originally wrote that uh, about three and a half months ago. Um, so hope we had <laughs> uh, a swell end of 2021 and have stayed safe. To all of the fellow new interns out there, we see you. We appreciate you. We're with you.
1: Yeah, six months in, we are very old interns now um this is also our first episode with our new co-host archna uh so so excited welcome to the podcast archna
2: thanks guys very generous of you to include me in your little education adventure i'm really happy to be here and hopefully i'll be able to add some value to am labs (laughs) that was a very intended pun
0: Mm, like a lab value
2: yeah yeah you got it smarty (laughs) pants
0: I did not get it the first time. Um, but we have zero doubt that our listeners um, will appreciate a reprieve from Jacob and me. Um, Archna is our former medical school classmate, current doctor, um, very smart, talented person who we are excited to join the show. Can you Thank tell you. us a little bit about yourself, Archna? <laughs>
2: I was just going to say thanks. That's very kind of you. Um, And you did the famous tell me about yourself thing. So if interviews have prepped me for anything um, in brief, in very short brief. uh, No, yeah. Like you mentioned, I went to medical school with Nathan and Jacob at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Um, But I grew up in Central California. So if anybody knows Bakersfield, that's where I'm from. If you've ever gone from LA to San Francisco or vice versa, um, uh, went to undergrad there and then went out to the Midwest. I actually ended up taking a year off from medical school and, uh, doing a master of public health in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm hoping to be able to bring in a couple of pearls of like social determinants of health and some cool policy things that are maybe going on in the world right now. Um, Yeah, it's a little bit about me. I'm a current intern at Mayo Clinic in Arizona uh, in internal medicine. So shout out to May, Arizona folks.
1: So today we'll attempt to demystify BUN, talk a little bit about BUN and the creatinine ratio, and then go into other things like GI bleeds and heart failure. Nice and easy. No big deal
2: heart failure, no big deal. Um, we'd also like to welcome our two wonderful guests today that have taken time out to add their expertise. Uh, we have a perspective of a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Hospitalologists are not a thing.
1: Hospital- <laughs>
2: <laughs> it could easily be though. A hospitalist like- and a nephrologist.
3: Here they are. My name's Katie Rick. I'm a hospitalist here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. I've been working for about six years in hospital medicine after finishing residency here at Mayo as well.
4: So I'm uh, uh, Tony Valeri. I'm a member of the renal division at uh, Columbia University uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons or Vagelos College of Physicians and, Sur- and uh, Surgeons. Um, I've now been with the, div- I did my original training Uh, in internal medicine and nephrology, uh, you know, here at Columbia, uh, worked for several years at uh, Bellevue Hospital Center in New York City, and then was recruited back uh, by the division in 1991 to uh, take over running hemodialysis uh, at the medical center. And uh, I've I've been here (laughs) ever since then. Uh, Most of my focus now is really on uh, uh, CKD and and, and end-stage renal disease.
2: Let's take it bit by bit. Um, First off, what is BUN or blood urea nitrogen?
0: Archna, uh, does this mean that we're going to talk about the urea cycle?
2: Oh, God. Um, Actually, yes in that I will mention the term urea cycle and almost nothing else about it. Okay, Jacob, lead us off.
1: Okay, so I'm going to give this a shot. So blood urea nitrogen measures the amount of nitrogen from urea, which is a waste product of proteins in our body. The proteins are broken down in the liver and then passed into our urine. And these proteins
0: mostly come from diet, but can also come from everyday tissue breakdown. And more than 99% of our urea synthesis happens in the liver.
2: Yeah. So not to get too nitty gritty, but a basic overview of a little protein turns into BUN. Imagine you eat a big, juicy Beyond Burger. Sponsor (laughs) us. In your gut, the protein from that burger is converted to peptides and amino acids. Think back to undergrad. And more than 90% of it is absorbed and carried to the liver. There, the amino acids do some amino acid stuff, amination, mm-hmm. deamination magic, and in the in the hepatocyte and get turned into ammonia. Then that ammonia combines with carbon dioxide to make a fancy thing called carbamyl phosphate. And then that enters the urea, urea cycle. cycle. Oh, yes. Man. So proteins not absorbed by your small bowel, um, And any recycled urea are converted to ammonia by gut flora, uh, go probiotics, in the colon, which is absorbed via the portal circulation into liver to enter again the urea cycle. So no wastage, really.
0: No wastage. Hashtag AM Labs. Um, So the urea cycle, it's all about turning ammonia, which is bad for us, into urea, which can be excreted by our kidneys.
1: Right. So nitrogen makes up roughly 50% of total blood urea, which is why our assays here in the U.S. measure the nitrogen component of blood urea, hence blood urea nitrogen. Uh, This is kind of just a fun fact because the European assays really just measure the whole urea molecule in their tests.
2: Oh, that's actually really cool. Just in case any of us go work for the NHS. Wink, wink. Um, So now we should talk about what makes BUN go up or down before jumping to creatinine. Take it one step at a time. Dr. Valeri speaks more to this.
4: So uh, the UN refers to blood urea nitrogen. Uh, So it's really uh, the measurement of urea in the blood. Uh, Urea is a metabolic product uh, uh, produced mostly in the liver through the urea cycle and it's produced in production in in conjunction with protein catabolism and actually the generation of urea in the body uh, is uh, directly related to protein catabolism um, for about every one milligram of of um, um, of urea uh, nitrogen that is generated by the body uh, it indicates the metabolism of about six and a quarter milligrams of protein. Uh, And we actually can use it in people with chronic kidney disease as measures, not just of uh, what their level of kidney function is, and in people who require dialysis, use it as a measure of how effectively we're dialyzing them. But also, it can be used as a measure of, uh, does the person have adequate protein intake, which is important in terms of trying to minimize um, the um, Um, immunosuppressed state of people with chronic kidney disease. So urea is generated from protein catabolism, uh, mainly uh, generated uh, in the liver, and it's a small molecule that is uh, freely filtered and excreted by the kidney, so it provides uh, a measure of kidney function, although having listened to what I just said, You have to realize that it's really, again, a balance between the level in the blood will depend on how much you're producing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we kind of assume it's the same for everyone, but obviously there are caveats. And the level of kidney function in terms of excretion. One big difference between urea and all the other products, nitrogenous waste products that we don't measure, but we use urea as a marker uh, molecule for their, their accumulation in the blood, is that, you're right, urea is a little bit different from all the other molecules and that there is passive reabsorption of urea after it's filtered in the proximal tubule. So that can affect the, uh, what causes the, the level in the blood to be at a, at a certain level.
0: So you told us most of the BUN comes from our diet. So if we eat a bunch of protein, will that make our BUN go up?
1: Yeah. So according to Hostin, the primary source is dietary protein. And that lends itself to talking about our framework for BUN changes. Changes in production versus changes in excretion. An increased dietary protein load would cause obviously an increase in production, Right, and anything
0: that causes high protein production, these are things like GI bleeds or even glucocorticoids, that would also lead to higher BUN in the serum.
1: Right, a GI bleed is essentially a dietary load of protein for the gut. It doesn't know the difference between your hemoglobin and a burger. That's really appetizing. Um, Here's Dr. Rick on a clinical application of using the BUN to contextualize a dropping hemoglobin.
3: I... So I would say I use it mostly for patients where I am not sure what kind of bleed they they have. Um, you know, if the patient has classic signs of an upper GI bleed, I don't. Like I mentioned before, I don't calculate the BUN to creatinine ratio for that patient. Um, I do use it on a patient where I'm just not not sure. And I'm trying to decide what type of scope to order first, or maybe I'm not going to be able to figure that out and I'm ordering them both. But, um, so that's where I use it most often, which is a good number of patients, honestly, you know, where they have not, they have kind of, they'll describe like a purplish color to their stool or maybe they have both black stools with red streaks and you're just sort of scratching your head and begging for them to just describe melanoma. Um, and so in those patients, I do calculate it. And what I do, though, is also kind of compare to the patient's baseline. So, you know, again, if they already had like a sort of high normal to creatinine ratio a, a month ago when they were in the hospital and they weren't, and their hemoglobin was completely stable at that time, and now they're here with a definite GI bleed, um, and the to creatinine ratio is pretty similar to how it was before, but maybe it does technically, you know... Is elevated, I, it might not be that helpful. But if it's markedly different than the patient's baseline, or if I have no baseline to go by, obviously the higher the ratio, the more useful it is. I don't use a specific cutoff, though. Um, I think I've seen, you know, like 30, 35 ish even to be helpful. But, you know, if it was 28, it's not like I'm going to say it's not an upper GI bleed, or even if it was in the lower 20s, I'm not going to rule out an upper GI bleed based on a BU and a ratio.
2: Okay, that makes sense. Uh, If they have obvious melana or bright red blood per rectum, duh. But if hemoglobin is dropping and your BUN, let's say, isn't really budging, maybe I need to think of a more acute, brisk GI bleed or even non-GI, such as intracerebral bleed.
0: Another production issue is liver disease. So the urea cycle happens in the liver, but what if a patient has cirrhosis? They may have hepatic encephalopathy in the setting of increased ammonia, but that ammonia is increased because it's not being turned into urea because the hepatocytes are not working as well, and so the BUN will be lower than normal. This is the opposite of production issue before that caused uh, too high BUN. Now it is too low.
1: But we never order a venous ammonia, right?
0: I think that's right. I've seen it done. I've done it. Oh, but we never do it.
2: <laughs> never. Um, then, of course, is our excretion. The urea is excreted by our kidneys. So, obviously, if they aren't working as well, they can't excrete as much urea. And our serum levels, therefore, go up. So, basically, think anything hypovolemia, or pre-renal, so think heart failure because of decreased cardiac output, or think dehydration, think hemorrhage, think CKD.
0: So any low flow rate to the kidney results in increased urea reabsorption. In a normal state, something like 40 to 50% of urea is reabsorbed by the kidneys, and this mostly occurs in the proximal tubule. But when we are volume down, our kidneys are told to increase sodium and water reabsorption and urea absorption increases along with those.
1: So a wide normal range of roughly 5 to 20 milligrams per deciliter makes sense because a BUN of 20 may be normal for like a bodybuilder or something um, with high protein intake versus a BUN of 5 to 7 for say, a third-trimester pregnant woman whose GFR is ramped up.
2: Okay, this is great. We've talked a little bit about BUN, what makes it go up and down. Um, how about we talk about creatinine now?
0: Love it. So creatinine production is a function of muscle breakdown. It doesn't fluctuate quite like BUN does on a day-to-day basis from a production standpoint, but it does tend to go down as we age because we lose lean muscle as we age. And unlike urea, uh, the creatinine value is not affected by something like a GI bleed.
2: Creatinine formation mostly happens in the kidneys with a small portion happening in the small bowel and pancreas as well. Um, There's a lot of amino acid stuff going on in the liver after that point to form something called creatine. That creatine enters circulation, and about 90% of that is stored in our muscle tissue. Um, Then you have a bunch of phosphorylation, catalyzation stuff happening, and that muscle creatine um, is phosphorylated to creatine phosphate, and about 2% of these stores are converted to creatinine.
0: Sounds like we're going to need a future episode on creatinine, huh? Um, But the upshot is that it's a complex process to form creatine. That creatine then is in the muscle and creatine is turned into creatinine um, really as a function of muscle breakdown. And that is what we're measuring um, when we're thinking about the
1: kidney. Awesome. Awesome okay finally we can talk about the famous ratio nathan what context have you primarily used the bun to creatinine ratio on tests i have mostly used
0: it to help determine if a patient has a, <laughs> a prerenal renal aki uh, if that bun creatinine is more than 20 give some normal saline or lr um, and only lr am i right Um, but in residency so far, I think that we've mostly used it to think about a possible GI bleed.
2: I'm going to be honest. Every time I've calculated a BUN creatinine ratio, I've already had a hunch that something was pre-renal or post-renal and was mostly just corroborating info and making myself feel validated in some way. And I did mostly nothing about it. Uh, let's see what Dr. Valeri had to say about it though.
4: The two main markers we use as an estimate of kidney function or cha- and changes in kidney function is really both the, the BUN, the urea level, and the creatinine level. And the two together, you know, it's helpful to apply the two together in terms of assessing, you know, uh, what someone's kidney function is and how it's changing. So, you know, you're classically taught that typically the BUN to creatinine ratio should be somewhere around 20 to 1. When that ratio increases significantly, well, what is that telling you? Well, again, what's the difference? Creatinine is a small molecule uh, produced by predominantly muscle metabolism. Uh, and it's a waste product. It's filtered by the kidney uh, through the, uh, across the glomerulus and then excreted. There is a small amount of tubular secretion, but it's not really significant until the glomerular filtration rate itself gets very, very low, You know, below uh, typically an EGFR of about 15, that the tubular secretion becomes significant, not that, and it's not helpful, just that it then leads to an underestimate of how bad the kidney function really is, because you're getting some tubular secretion rather than a measurement of filtration. On the other hand, urea, as we just said, is filtered by the kidney, but there is some passive reabsorption, uh, so, that there, so that urea and creatinine go in op- somewhat opposite directions in terms of what they're telling you about the kidney function. Both will go up when there's reduced kidney function, uh, but the in terms of each of those things as an actual measure of the glomerular filtration rate. Again, as the GFR goes very low, creatinine, the level of creatinine, will tend to underestimate how bad the renal function is uh, to a certain extent because of tubular secretion, whereas urea may may underestimate the clearance because of some passive reabsorption. So that's why it's helpful to to look at both and use them in combination. So like what I mentioned before, like, so typically we think of the, you know, if, if there's reduced kidney function or reduced glomerular filtration, both the, B, the urea level and the creatinine will go up. And roughly speaking, they should go up in parallel. And again, if that, if under normal conditions, the BUN creatinine ratio is roughly around 20 to one or a little less, they should go up in parallel. And if suddenly the, the BUN goes up much, much higher than the creatinine, well, what is that telling you? Well, you have to be careful. It could be telling you one of two things. Uh, there is uh, the filtration is should be the, the, the filtration should be the same, but maybe there is increased passive reabsorption of urea in the proximal tubule, and that's why the urea level is going up higher than the creatinine. So, so in other words, a, a, BU, a BUN-creatinine ratio. The BUN and creatinine are increasing, but the ratio is also increasing. And that can also be a tip-off that maybe there is uh, a functional change in kidney function. Uh, so reduced renal perfusion, uh, what we call a pre-renal state, leading to increased urea reabsorption in the proximal tubule. So when you, we see that high, that the big discrepant in the, in the ratio, then you start to think, is the renal dysfunction a hemodynamic effect? Is it due to reduced renal perfusion? But I'll automatically throw in a caveat: uh, if the person has significant in, increased generation of urea, you can mm-hmm. also see a higher BUN to creatinine ratio than you would expect, and it's not due to dehydration; it's due to increased urea production. Well, what can that be? Two things to think of is put someone who is severely ill, maybe septic, and in a catabolic state, and generating, catabolizing more protein, generating more urea or uh, sort of something analogous to it, someone with internal gastrointestinal bleeding. They'll absorb some of that blood, metabolize it, and then generate more urea. So again, uh, seeing a very high urea, a BUN to creatinine ratio could be a sign of a pre-renal state, but you should also think in terms of, uh, could they be having internal bleeding? Could they be in a very catabolic state generating a lot more urea? But again, if both are going up, then clearly there is reduced renal function, but it may help looking at the ratio in terms of trying to get a clue as to what is, that, what is affecting the kidney, intrinsic renal damage or an effect on renal hemodynamics, such as reduced perfusion to the kidney.
1: So it's actually helpful to know that the parallel nature of these numbers can help narrow down our differential. For example, if the BUN increases way faster than creatinine, it's really reasonable to put things like GI bleeds on your differential um, and also things like TPN use or steroids for their catabolic nature or increased protein intake as causes of that discrepant ratio.
0: Exactly. And if the creatinine increases at a faster rate than the BUN, we can consider etiologies of increased muscle breakdown, such as rhabdomyolysis or a subsequent ATN.
2: This is a good time to once again highlight the basic tenets of a good HMP. You know, listen to your patient's story and see if their numbers clinically correlate to a renal failure picture, let's say. Here's Dr. Rick's take on fitting in the BUN-creatinine ratio into clinical practice as a hospitalist.
3: Yeah, I would say I use it as part of my compendium of tools to help differentiate like causes of AKI, for example. Um, I... I definitely don't use strict cutoffs for anything. You know, I think um, urine sodiums is another example. Less than ten is really great. It's diagnostic for you know a, a kidney that's sensing volume depletion. But it's often you know twenty one or seventeen, and and how do you take that into account? Especially if you think about the patient's sodium intake and how much you know normal saline did they get yesterday and all these other things. So I think it's very similar to that, and and that I don't have an absolute cutoff. But if I have a clinical picture that's fitting. With with volume depletion and the BU endocratinine is supportive of that. I, I, you know, I like that, but it is often not the only thing I'm clinching um, my diagnosis on. You know, as we had discussed, actually, in our course, um, hyponatremia being, I think, the ultimate internist's bane of existence, Um, you know, when I'm trying to decide, differentiate that kind of um, hypovolemic patient from a euvolemic patient, and it can be really tough sometimes, and it makes a big difference in your management between a fluid restriction and giving fluids, um... And there's often patients where the history and the exam are just really tricky. You know, it would be one of the things I would look at. But if the B-U endocrating ratio was 18, I wouldn't say, oh, this patient's definitely not dry. And if it's 25, I wouldn't say, oh, they definitely are um, because there's other other issues too that can <laughs> confound all that, as you guys know. So. Um, I just, the more kind of check boxes I can make in, in support of a certain kind of, um, differential the better, but to me, it's, it's just one of many things I would look at, not what I would ever hang my hat on.
2: Okay. A really important population to consider when talking about anything creatinine or BUN are our dialysis patients, especially as internal medicine docs. So I don't know about you guys, but I don't know what's happening with any of their labs if they're a dialysis patient, and I rely heavily on the dialysis gods to make sure things are okay. Um, Dr. Rick gives us some good insight into when our ears might have to perk up when
3: we see certain trends in the BUN or the creatinine. The BUN, I would say the patients that they should be watching that most closely on are um, patients that are nearing the need for dialysis. So if you're concerned about uremia, for example, there's no absolute number there, but it can definitely help. Or patients who recently started on dialysis, um, you know, being careful that we're not dropping their BUN too quickly after dialysis. Um, and then, otherwise, you know, I would say using it again when you need the diagnostic support. So um, those would be the times. But I, I, don't think the BUN is too high risk as far as um, pouring enough attention to it. Hopefully, the the clinical scenario will kind of dictate its utility.
1: I learned on rounds with Dr. Valeri that the BUN can be used to determine the adequacy or the like kind of the effectiveness of dialysis. Specifically, we kind of ballpark for a two-thirds reduction in BUN level as one of the several markers that the patient was um, dialyzed sufficiently. Here's Dr. Valeri talking about this in practice.
4: It, it is actually based on on uh, uh, several old studies. Uh, one is called the National Cooperative Dialysis Study, which was done in the late 1970s. You know, the first, first you know, in nephrology, there, there are not that many randomized controlled trials, especially in terms of dialysis. But that was the first study that tried to look at making an assessment of, well, what's an adequate amount of dialysis? We've evolved from that and developed something called uh, the single pool urea kinetic model. Uh, which is a sort of a simple model assuming that the pa- uh, treating the patient as a single homogeneous pool of urea and using the clearance of that urea removal from the body as a measure of the adequacy of dialysis. So that concept with, the, with studies have found that um, about a two-thirds, if someone's treating three times a week on, on dialysis, uh, having a drop in urea again, as a marker of all small, as as an indirect marker of all the small nitrogenous waste products that we don't measure, roughly a two-thirds reduction in urea with each treatment done three times a week uh, achieves what we think is adequate dialysis in terms of controlling and, you know, controlling and preventing uremic symptoms. That number, actually, that, we call it the urea reduction ratio. So it's just a percent fall in urea with treatment. A two-thirds reduction in urea uh, plugs into a formula called the single pool, uh, well, it's called the single pool KT over V, single pool normalized urea clearance. It computes to what appears to be adequate treatment, at least based on how you know the world currently practices dialysis. And there are studies, have, well, there was a study called the HEMO trial looked at, well, you know, instead of a two-thirds reduction, what if we push it to, you know, uh, like 75% reduction? Three times a week, they couldn't show a benefit. So, right now, with the dialyzers that we currently use, that appears to be the most benefit that people will get from, from dialysis. <laughs>
1: So one way I've typically thought about the relationship between BUN and dialysis is as an indication for urgent dialysis. It's that it's that U in the whole AEIOU thing we might have learned in med school for reasons why someone should get dialysis. Um, so that uremia is essentially high enough BUN levels that are causing symptoms. Um, We'll get into complications of uremia next, but it's nice to learn more nuances about how uremia is thought about in dialysis, measure of protein intake, and a marker of effectiveness of dialysis.
0: Indeed. And now we'll get on to those complications. A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. Y for yowza you need dialysis. (laughs) I know that uremia is a potential indication to start dialysis, but what are the symptoms of uremia?
1: Yeah, I used to think it was primarily encephalopathy, but as Dr. Valeri describes, it's much more than that.
2: Yeah, also, at what levels of uremia should I start looking out for symptoms? Like is there a specific range mm-hmm. or number I need to watch out for?
4: You know, there's really no absolute level at which you can say you expect a patient to develop symptoms. Um, I have to say, symptoms are more likely to develop when it's severe acute renal failure and the the ni- nitrogenous waste products, as measured by BUN and creatinine, are rising much more quickly. When they rise slowly, people seem to, you know, Acclimate to the the level of azotemia in their body, and symptoms seem to not occur until their azotemia is much more severe. But if you say at what level, you know, when I think about it, you know, I, I don't think we have a set cutoff. There's no set cutoff at when you expect to see. You know, typically I would say somewhere around a BUN, for example, of eighty to one hundred is when we might expect to see symptoms. But uh, even like Jacob could tell you, we had a patient who had a BUN of 130 and, as far as we could tell, uh, was not really symptomatic of it.
0: So there is no hard number. But as the BUN is getting closer to 100, we should start thinking about, is this patient experiencing symptoms of uremia? And Dr. Valeri describes what these symptoms look like.
4: What are the symptoms, you know, the earliest or mildest symptoms of what we call uremia, which just means you, you know urea in the blood, is essentially poor appetite, nausea, intermittent intermittent or persistent vomiting. Those are probably the earliest symptoms. Uh, the more advanced symptoms are, you know, uh, uh, encephalopathy, you know, worsening mental status, cirrhosis. Uh, uh, Uremic perica- pericarditis, pleuritis; those are sort of very, very advanced symptoms. And in the set, in those, you, well, even the early, the early mildest symptoms, uh, the GI symptoms, those usually need, you know, unless you can reverse their renal function, uh, basically you have to move towards renal replacement therapy, some form of dialysis. And it becomes uh, an emergency, really, if they actually develop serositis, pleuritis mostly pericarditis uh, or encephalopathy those are clear along with you know si- de- you know life-threatening electrolyte abnormalities the ch- ch- chief one being hyperkalemia or severe volume overload uh, where you can't manage them with high- dose diuretics as an urgent indication to initiate dialysis
1: Ooh, okay. So that was a lot. If you remember nothing else, here are three take-home points we thought would be high yield.
2: Ooh, love high yield. All right. One, try to look at the BUN creatinine numbers in isolation, but also in parallel. It can help narrow your differential to GI bleed versus intrarenal, let's say.
0: Number two, Uremia is one of several indications for dialysis, and the uremic symptoms are diverse, ranging from nausea, vomiting, to pericarditis, to encephalopathy. However, BUN is also important once dialysis has been initiated, as it uh, is used as a marker of sufficient dialysis. Look for that two-thirds
1: reduction. Number three, as an intern or anyone evaluating a patient, the volume assessment on exam is so essential. The B-U-N to creatinine ratio, especially in settings of AKI, is interpreted quite differently if a patient is volume overloaded versus volume down. Think of the exceptions like cardiorenal syndrome.
2: Awesome. And lastly, we want to end this episode with an important reminder from Dr. Rick.
3: You bet. So I would say to answer your second, the second part of that, um... Just being really mindful about why you're ordering things and don't, you know, there's a lot of patients in the hospital who don't need labs every day. Or who maybe don't need the entire panel, um, you know. There's some cost savings sometimes if you're ordering a couple of components of a panel. At more, so let's say of the BMP, for example, if you're ordering, I think what I was told, if I remember right, and I had a, a cost sheet at some point in my life, but if I ordered more than two of the, you know, like seven components of the BMP, it's cheaper to just get the BMP. But um, but if I'm just li- really just following someone's sodium or just following their creatinine because they're on vancomycin or something, you know, it's okay to just order those tests. And you know, you probably don't. Don't need some of them every day again. Um, And there's lots of reasons to to not order labs so early in the morning if it's not really going to impact, you know, if that's not why the patient's still in the hospital, if it's not going to affect whether they can discharge that day or not, maybe you can order them a little bit later in the day to get the patient some sleep, especially, you know, my patient population tends to be at relatively high risk for delirium. so just being really mindful about them and I think trying to break out of the culture that we have in internal medicine in particular, but you know having those labs ready and writing them all down every day and bringing them to rounds and, and feeling like that's important I think um, I'm hoping the culture will shift to you know the better doctor you are, the honestly the fewer labs you might be ordering or um, just being very mindful about whether you're doing anything with those and even if you are if it's something you have to monitor every day or not.
0: That's all, folks. Thanks for joining us for another AM Labs podcast episode. And a special thank you to Doctors Rick and Valeri for their insights and time.
1: Just a reminder, this podcast is intended for medical education and is not medical advice. Views expressed here represent only the views of the person who said them and not their affiliated institution. And thank you also to Dr. David Finkel, our Hello. former medical school classmate, for help with editing
0: this episode. Alex Higano helped with editing and is our sound designer and music man who created all of the jams you've heard in this podcast. We will be back with Lactate Episode 5.
2: Stay safe, everyone.